worked so far, but we're not out yet. I wanna know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I wanna know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Cooker, a.k.a. Caliban, and frankly, I'm sick and tired of Calrec creep. It starts earlier every year. You've just finished hosing off the grease from Rumari, and bam, it's time for the silent meditation. I'm joined in this episode once again by science fiction writer and editor Scott Pearson. Scott is also the co-host of the Generations Geek podcast, a more or less family-friendly celebration of geekdom on the Chronic Rift Network. Scott, welcome back to the show. Good afternoon. Permission to come aboard granted. Today we'll be talking about MELD, the 16th episode of the second season of Star Trek Voyager. The Society of the Federation is a relatively tranquil one. The elimination of scarcity, hunger, and want has brought an end to war and social strife and has resulted in peace and the desire for peaceful, nonviolent interaction with the rest of the galaxy. But humans, and indeed all Federation races, have inherited a legacy of violence from their unenlightened pasts, legacies they must continually redeem themselves of, and even in the evolved 24th century, the mysteries of the real undiscovered country, the mind, will sometimes still lead to violent and senseless acts that beggar understanding. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First off, Scott, it's good to have you back on the show. It's been a while, and you've been very busy in your absence here, working as a fiction editor, as well as editing for documentaries, editing on the Star Trek Adventures RPG, writing your own fiction, and hosting your own podcast, Generations Geek. <laughs> Question, would your family recognize you if they saw you walk past? <laughs> oh, I don't know. It's all just a blur, <laughs> really. <laughs> On the uh, most recent, on your most recent episode of Generations Geek, you talked to uh, Zach Stentz, who is a screenwriter and producer, and he recently wrote the Netflix film Rim of the World. Yes, that was a great get for us. Uh, I was I was so surprised. Uh, I was on Twitter in the middle of the night, like you do, <laughs> and and he tweeted out that he was uh, that he had this new movie debuting on Netflix. And that he was uh, available to do interviews with genre, uh, media, podcasts, whatever. I figured he was probably talking about more professional venues than a little father-daughter <laughs> podcast. But he didn't say that specifically. So I tweeted back at him and said, we'd love to have him on. I had Before, I had already seen the previews for the movie and thought it looked like a likable movie. Yeah. And... Uh, he got back to me right away and said, let's set something up. And so I was uh, uh, found myself Twitter direct messaging with him uh, while texting with Ella, who was waiting at the airport in London for a flight to Greece. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like six in the morning, her time, midnight, my time, 10 o'clock, his time. And we got it all to, to come together, and he came on the show, and he was a great interview, very personable, relatable guy, and and uh, 
yeah, it, it was great. That's really cool. And he's had uh, such a varied career, varied in the sense of he's worked on a lot of properties, but most of them seem to have been uh, genre properties. I know he got his start working on uh, Andromeda, on Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda. And then, of course, yeah. worked on some of the uh, the Marvel films, um, both in and out of the MCU. And then, of course, this uh, this Netflix uh, movie now. Yeah, he's got a very impressive resume. Uh, he's been on some of uh, uh, contributed to some of the Arrowverse shows. He yeah. worked on uh, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, which, <laughs> you know, underappreciated series didn't get the time it needed to really I, I know. find if itself. I interviewed him he'd be like well I'm gonna talk about room of the world hold on we're gonna talk about Sarah Connor Chronicles for about 55 minutes and then five minutes of room of the world <laughs> yeah that was uh, I really enjoyed that series and for and I think that we've proved uh with the Terminator property uh with uh, Dark Fate coming out soon that uh we've got a lot of the juice out of this fruit here <laughs> and one of the things that I liked about Sarah Connor was taking that idea of alternate timelines and doing something different with it, you know, doing that specifically because you had this need for an episodic show. But like, how can we find new corners of this you know, time travel universe to explore? Not just, yes, a Terminator has come back in time to kill a defenseless person. Yeah, I th- I thought it was a great expansion to the franchise, uh, but it just didn't find its audience. But and it, well, actually, I think I said this to Zach during the interview, it's like, well, if that was on now on Netflix or something, it would just keep going. It'd be fun. Oh, it would never go off. Yeah. 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 But on the, the in the old world of the way network TV worked, it didn't have the audience. Yeah, it's too bad. But that's the one good thing about the uh, explosion of streaming shows now is that things can generally um, find an audience uh, if they deserve one. You were talking to him. Uh, he was in presumably L.A., I guess. And Ella was, of course, in the U.K. at that time. So that was yeah. a, a pretty, pretty long distance uh, phone call for you guys. I'd never done anything like that before. I mean, usually I'm just dealing with two time zones, not three. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah. We, we were able to set up. Uh, it was 10 in the morning for him, noon for me and six in the evening for Ella when we recorded. I, uh, I've talked to a couple different um, Australian guests uh, on the show this year. And so for me, it's like that's, you know, more than the diameter of the earth away. <laughs> of course, it doesn't matter uh, if you're using satellites or if you're on the internet, but the real problem is the time zone thing. Like, I have trouble just coordinating with Ella when she's in England, but now I've got to, like, add a day to it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It seems like it's not even real. Yeah. At that point. We need star dates for that reason. <laughs> well, we both went to uh, Shore Leave Con this year, uh, Shore Leave 41 in Maryland. And it was particularly exciting for me as I got a chance to meet in the flesh many of the authors who I've developed a digital relationship with mm-hmm. to the show. One of those people was Jim Johnson, who was on the show earlier this year. Uh, and he also uh, works for Modifius as a line editor. Now, is he like technically your boss? Uh, you guys work together. At this point... He kind of is my boss. He, you know, I kind of report to him directly. He gets in touch with me when there's things coming up. I'm working on various things for him now that I'm not at liberty to name specifically, but uh, I'm going to be doing some writing for some upcoming supplements instead of just the editing that I've been doing. So I'm looking, that's great. I'm looking forward to contributing some uh, fun little sidebars to stuff to be named in the future. Your daughter, uh, Ella, was also at Shore Leave, of course. And good thing, too, because the exuberance of her youth resulted in a few close encounters with some of the con guests. (laughs) Yes. uh, 
Yeah, she just basically, w w with some encouragement with some of the other people that she was hanging out with, but uh, basically took it upon herself to invite both Anson Mount and Ethan Peck to come over and say hello to us, where all the <laughs> uh, authors were gathered in a corner uh, drinking, as you do. Right. And uh, yeah, it was it was a big surprise for everyone because... Um, you know, and she was giving us grief about, you know, come on, you big author people, don't you ever just go up to the actors and invite them to the table? And <laughs> but the thing is, it's it's rare that the actors come and hang out in the bar because, you know, they've just done a day of glad handing with the fans. They're, you know, once they're off the clock, you know, they're kind of tired. They like to go back to their room and have some quiet and not have to face a bunch of uh, of fans. But um but yeah, both of those guys came down to the bar and Alice said hello and wanted you come over and 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 they did. Yeah, I, did, I just love that. Like, I mean, you know, I, I you know, if Nichelle Nichols is not going to come hang out. You know, she's just no. going to go back to her room. But yeah, just like the fact that the uh, the missing X factor was just you know Ella was the matchmaker to get this <laughs> thing <Yeah>. together. <laughs> The, the lubricant to make this machine work. So, yeah, yeah, that was that was an amazing experience. And as I've said before on this uh, on this show, uh, Anson Mount's got a handshake like a Swedish massage. <laughs> He's a great guy. I so enjoyed my, you know, I, I had a couple of interactions with him at the con. He's just such a nice, personable guy. And I've been listening to his podcast now, The mm -hmm. Well, and uh, he's. And it's a it's a great podcast. Just this morning, I was listening to his interviews with some of his castmates. So he did two episodes interviewing Ethan Peck, and now I'm into the two episodes he did interviewing Doug Jones. Yeah, and they're great, and you just get a sense of uh, such a great sense of of them as people. Uh, you know, Doug Jones just seems to be the sweetest human in the universe. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah. So I highly recommend any Star Trek fans, you got to listen to The Well and not just to the Star Trek episodes, but l listen to all the episodes. It's a very uh, wide ranging podcast. So you never know quite what you're going to hear. And it's always interesting. Yeah. Well, we'll let that little plug go by uh, on this show. That's that's OK. <laughs> I, I like I enjoy that podcast, too. I, I know you're very busy working on new Trek material. Uh, there's, of course, a lot of new shows in development. Uh, some of our mutual friends are involved uh, with those shows. And it's an exciting time to be a Trek fan. It's also a time, I think, where Trek is looking for an identity or perhaps trying to expand so it can inhabit more than one space, not just mm -hmm. being the Trek show that's on right now that's vaguely Trek but takes place in specific location or time. And I read an interview the other day with the uh, chief creative officer of CBS, David Nevins, where he was quoted as saying that they are focusing on building the brand of Star Trek. He said that we want to get it younger and more relevant to people, which looked at from one perspective is like the worst kind of corporate speak, like a guy <laughs> in a suit saying, you know, we're going to squeeze this thing until it becomes a black hole. But on the other side, you know, we're, we're gearing up for a show starring a 79 year old and all his old friends. So I'm not exactly sure what making it younger means in this context. Well, they are, there is the, um, the Nickelodeon show. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so they are doing one that is specifically geared toward a younger audience. And, yeah. and I would say that the, the uh, the pacing and the storytelling that's done on Discovery is done is 
geared toward a newer crowd of fans. And then mm. now you've got Picard, which is going to definitely appeal to the older crowd of fans. And then you've got the uh, lower decks coming up. Uh, so I do think that they are trying to cover more bases. You know, I don't know anything about the TV business, but I know that the kind of uh, fractioning that you're getting with uh, different streaming networks and different offerings uh, would, I think, could benefit um, the burgeoning franchise of Star Trek on TV. Because normally, you know, you want your show to hit all those quadrants. That's how you're going to get everybody. You're going to lose them to Big Bang or somebody else mm -hmm. if you're not young enough or, or whatever. But now... You just keep them in the playground. You know, you've got the show for the older people, the nostalgic show. You've got the cartoon show, the new show. So it seems uh, it seems really smart. But to say something like making Trek relevant, like, buddy, Trek's always been relevant. That's the point of Trek. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, you know, it, it is at, at its worst when it is up its own butt, you know, exploring <laughs> something that's not relevant. But that hasn't been a problem, I don't think, for a while. Well, and they're really working toward, and, and I hope this... All, continues to come together but as far as uh i mean there's going to be the shows now on other networks but as far as cbs all access goes they're working toward that we should reach a point where there's basically always a new sh show on you know mm -hmm. that that mm -hmm. that the uh so shows have 10 or 13 episode runs and then when one is over then the next season of the next one comes up and then when that's done another season comes up because now we have Discovery, Picard, uh, the Section 31 show. And so those can all kind of be running in series. It is an exciting time to be a Star Trek fan. Well, why did you choose this specific episode, Meld, to discuss on the show today? Two words. Brad Dourif. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, his performance and this, this character arc has just stuck with me for all these you know, what is it? 25 years now. Yeah. Um, typecasting, I suppose, but he is so good at having this sort of creepy aura about him. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's certainly part of the reason why it stuck in my mind, but also just how it starts and then where it goes when he turns up again, just, uh, it's disturbing and, and sad and, and depressing and, and interesting. <laughs> and we can I guess we can get into the details of that as we uh, work through the episode. But it's it is something that stuck in my mind. And so when I was trying to think of something to do uh, and trying to come up, uh, well, I was kind of leaning toward Voyager or one of the other series that you haven't done as many uh, episodes on. Mm -hmm. And so when I tried to think of standout episodes in Voyager, this one popped in. And it's also it's a little bit less obvious maybe than some of the other episodes that you think of when you think of Voyager. It really is amazing, his performance. And I don't know if it's like the difference between um, big screen and small screen acting. There's no shade uh, to the Voyager cast, but he really is on this this other level. You know, he's it's different than when you bring. Uh, I don't know, just, you know, a famous TV guy of the week and yeah. to do like a Admiral part like he's just. The camera is just loves him and, is, and he's just fascinating, um, you know, like a it's like a cat, you know, it just yeah. is on screen. And I think it's perfect for this role because, of course, the character himself is supposed to be this uh, this enigma uh, that not even Tuvok can figure out. Yeah. And I've always been fascinated by 
crime and punishment really in the Star Trek universe. Like presumably crime is extremely rare, but it has to happen still. You know, we see like bad admirals or anybody who's ever had a grudge against Kirk, you know, this week, yeah. they get let off screen. But where do they go? You know, they're they're usually violent or semi-violent criminals. But what about like Bashir's dad? Like, does he get some Felicity, Felicity Huffman jail time after the <laughs> truth gets out? Uh, does he go to a club fed prison like Tom Paris? I would assume so. And yeah, he must. And and, and obviously what made the idea the, the the question even more interesting is the context of Voyager that they're alone they're you know yeah. what do they do a lot of problems on Voyager are are that way i mean there is no there's no you know a starfleet to call on subspace there's no solution incoming you know there's no help i think it's funny that paris's penal colony is in new zealand it's like come on <laughs> Come on, Federation. You can do better than that. Why not reopen Alcatraz? <laughs> uh, mental illness is also something that is addressed uh, in this episode and in Trek, but I feel I feel like it's rarely um, fully explored. And of course, like a lot of fields, like the Trek's writers aren't psychologists, but quote unquote crazy people, you know, get cast as villains, uh, you know, or whatever they're suffering from is mm-hmm. like a sort of one note justification for the plot. And a notable early exception uh, in TOS is I think the episode, the doomsday machine, which we talked about the last time you're on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, Decker's like the human antagonist ostensibly in that episode, but his psychosis I think is fairly well drawn, uh, especially as an effect of the PTSD that he's experienced. But then again, many of the people who created and wrote the original series were in world war two or in Korea and themselves would probably understand and be very familiar with shell shock and have experienced things like that themselves. Yeah. When Decker really breaks down in that episode, you feel for him. Mm-hmm. You yeah. Know, you, you know that he's, even though earlier on you, uh, obviously you're siding with Spock against him, but, uh, for the time period, yeah, surprisingly layered portrayal of what the guy had gone through. Yeah, I think it was it was a sensitive uh, portrayal for the most part, a little bit of a cane mutiny in there. And, yep. uh, it, you know, I think it was a big leap forward for Roddenberry and company to add a counselor to the cast for TNG and to try to explore the emotions of the crew more. But, you know, I think the franchise as a whole... You know, I think if they have, they have a particular lane that they want to tell stories in, and as long as someone's emotions or fear, or psychosis serve that space military fiction story that they want to tell, uh, it usually works out. But they don't usually go outside of that uh, too much with these psychological stories. Yeah, well, it's kind of awkward, and and it kind of ties into some of the problems that uh, TNG had in that. Roddenberry wants the Federation and the future to be perfect. Yeah. And there was a lot of, you know, it's been reported many times over the years that the writers had a lot of problems in the early seasons because he wouldn't allow them to have uh, conflict among the crew because (laughs) in the future, everyone's so well adjusted that that just wouldn't happen. But then it really ties your hands behind your back trying to, tell dramatic stories and and the further that you take this concept of uh you know there's no material wants because we have replicators we you know it's like there's everything is there it's like a lot of the 
root causes of crime and and that sort of stuff have been eliminated theoretically so you know then and then what about mental health you would assume that mental health issues have been taken care of uh, in in much the same way as they can just you know wave a wand over you and and fix a, a broken bone that they can probably help people with their phobias and and neuroses uh, you know and you know so then it's like if you just have a bunch of happy smiley people walking around where's where's the story so it, it is kind of awkward i think that that you know every once in a while they dip into it and uh with varying success over how they portray it i yeah i i think it shows uh I th i'm hoping restraint on their part in that they stop short of having that uh, that wavy wand thing to fix things. And if you did have a planet of smiling, happy, happy people, they all <laughs> served uh, Landrew or something like that. Yeah, it was yeah. generally uh, depicted as a bad thing. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll definitely explore this more as we get going. Talking about the episode Meld, the 16th episode of the second season of Voyager. It first aired on February 5th of 1996. The teleplay for the episode is by Michael Piller, who we've, of course, discussed many times on this show. Uh, just to remind you, he was an executive producer and writer on TNG, DS9, and Voyager, and the co-creator of DS9 and Voyager. He also wrote and co-produced Star Trek Insurrection. The story for the episode is by Michael Sussman. Sussman got his start on Voyager as a writing intern and this is his first Voyager credit and he would go on to be a writer producer on Voyager and Enterprise and write or co-write 33 episodes total of both series. The episode was directed by Cliff Bowl. He's another name that we've talked about on the show before. He directed 42 episodes total of the three 24th Century Trek series. The Bolian race was named in his honor. The start date for this episode is unknown. It presumably takes place in 2372. And your assignment, Scott, and you know this, how this works, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of Meld. After a murder is discovered on Voyager, Tuvok takes it upon himself to try to help the violent offender with horrible repercussions for himself. <laughs> and he throttles a holiday uh, Neelix <laughs> like we've all wanted to uh, once or twice. A very therapeutic program. Uh, great job. This episode was commissioned in a way by Michael Piller. He had a story idea that centered around Tuvok being confronted with uh, senseless violence and being affected by it uh, psychologically as a Vulcan. And Piller had explained this idea to some of the freelancers that were pitching for the show, uh, but nothing came from that. Uh, meanwhile, Michael Sussman, who's working as an intern on Voyager at the time, had the responsibility of uh, being a reader, reading submitted scripts from freelancers and summarizing them for Pillar uh, for possible purchase. And Sussman himself had an idea for a story in which Tuvok mind-melded with an alien serial killer, and the aliens' hate and racism would sort of infect Tuvok and stoke his own repressed feelings about humans. And as the story goes, on the last day of Sussman's internship, uh, he pitched this idea to Pillar after Pillar had passed on all the other uh, submitted pitches. And Pillar bought it in the room, which uh, for for an intern <laughs> and for a guy who's trying to make it is like, that's uh, that's a good story. Yeah. Uh, you've, you've pitched for uh, for Star Trek, haven't you? Uh, no, um, I did submit on spec a couple of scripts when the series were taking those, but sure. I, I didn't get a nibble, so I never got to pitch to the show. What, what is, is a nibble like, uh, what do they do? They say, like, tell us more, or do you get on the phone with somebody, or? Or they have you come out there. Or they fly you out there. Yeah, I, um, I don't know if they 
necessarily pick up the ticket. I'm not quite sure what happened. You'll have to ask Bill Leisner about this because uh, oh, yeah, yeah. he actually did get to go in and pitch after they were uh, liked one of the scripts that he sent in on spec. Which has got to be, uh, that's got to be nerve wracking. <laughs> I can't, well, of course I've heard the story from Bill and I just, I just can't imagine. I try to imagine myself at that age, you know, because this was decades oh, ago, yeah. so you're in yeah, your 20s yeah. or whatever. I couldn't <laughs> imagine myself having the guts to, to do it. Like, yeah. he, I mean, <laughs> you, I mean, you'd have to try. You wouldn't turn it down if you had the opportunity. But when he tells me about the whole thing, I just, I just think, oh, I think I would just, you know, be in a behind the studio building, uh, throwing up with nervousness or something, you <laughs> yeah. know? Yeah. But he was I mean, in the room pitching to one of the guys. I can't remember yeah, who it was. Doing but... it. Well, this isn't a prescription, but I mean, I, this is what like cocaine is for, right? <laughs> it's, for, <laughs> it's for producing the scripts and then it helps you pitch them uh, as well in a very sweaty, sweaty manner. Uh, well, despite this idea of being Sussman's, uh, Pillar himself took up the writing duties on the story. Uh, as Sussman, uh, as an inexperienced writer, was deemed to be too green at the time to bring the script to the screen in time for production. And Pillar made changes to the original pitch. Uh, Sussman had originally conceived of the suitor character as a reptilian alien. Uh, he was changed to a human character. Um, Pillar pursued this original idea of Tuvok struggling to understand a killer's actions. And he actually hired a um, psychiatrist from the California Institute for the Mentally Insane as a consultant on the script. And they discussed the psychology of violence and also the language of um, the science of psychology that was used in the episode. Tim Russ, the actor behind Tuvok, was also instrumental in the development of the script. Uh, it was his suggestion that the race of the killer be changed from human to Betazoid. And he reasoned that we'd seen Tuvok mind meld with humans on the show and everything went okay. But perhaps the act of melding with a, a passionate and telepathic species like the Betazoids would be a riskier proposition for a Vulcan. While writing the episode, Pillar confessed that he had lost the plot while getting wrapped up in depicting, depicting Tuvok's dark emotional outbursts, and he wasn't sure how to end the episode. And according to him, uh, Rick Berman and Jerry Taylor suggested that the episode should loop back around to the issue of capital punishment that was discussed earlier in the episode, um, specifically Tuvok questioning his motivations in wanting to kill Suter and whether it was a justice for, what, um, for the crime or if it was just rage that was uh, motivating him. This also uh, marks the first appearance of Voyager's Brig on the series. Uh, let's talk about some of the guest stars in the episode. And really, there's only one person to talk about. Sorry, Ensign Hogan. Maybe you'll be on a future show. We can talk about you then. Uh, or the hand, that <laughs> Ensign Darwin's hand. Uh, Brad Dourif, of course, appears as Lon Suter on the episode. And the character would reappear in the second season finale, Basics Part 1, and the third series premiere, Basics Part 2. Uh, Duriff is an astonishingly accomplished actor. We'd be here all day listening, uh, listing his uh, most recognizable credits. He has over 170 credits on IMDb, and he got his start. He got his start as Billy in Milos Forman's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. <laughs> There's a lot of actors who are like in the right place, right time, you know, are the right person for a role. And yeah. You go, what happened to that guy? But this guy started with a bang and has been going ever since. He's the only thing I remember about Exorcist Three. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, George C. Scott. <laughs> but the Gemini killer. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's incredible. And I remember uh, watching the Lord of the Rings 
DVD commentaries mm-hmm. and him talking about how when he had to play Grima Wormtongue, they're like, hey, shave your eyebrows, will you? That'll make you look really weird. And apparently this is something he gets asked to do a lot. Like he had just gotten off another role where he had no eyebrows. And so his uh, girlfriend, his partner was like, oh, God, again, (laughs) got to look at you with no eyebrows for another two years. The great thing about making him Betazoid was then he was wearing the dark contact lenses. So he just has these black eyes. And that really, you know, did well for the character as well. Yeah, it really is a versatile effect. And of course, I mean, there are many real life humans who have very dark uh, irises, you know, and have like dark eyes. But it it looks sort of warm on uh, Deanna Troy. But yeah, here it's just like two black holes. It's like nothing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's really great. Um, Duraf is friends with Ethan Phillips, the man behind Neelix. And apparently they're having dinner uh, and the idea of him doing a Voyager episode came up, and he was game. Uh, he was actually doing a lot of TV guest spots at this time, and he's no stranger, of course, to weirdo and psycho roles. He played a convicted serial killer uh, who is talked to <laughs> in a cell by a main character uh, two years before in the X-Files first season episode, Beyond the Sea. And, of course, he year after that, he played uh, a serial killer in the Babylon 5 episode, Passing Through Gethsemane, uh, which was directed by Adam Nimoy. Oh. The director, Cliff Bull, uh, and I think I agree with him, he thought that Duroff was a little underused in the episode. Uh, he said, quote, I don't think we showed enough duality in Suter as the maniac taking on the Vulcan's calm control. We should have played off of him a little more, but there are only 44 minutes. And I think that is really the problem with this. You know, Tuvok is the main character here. But of course, Suter does get a chance to come back for two more episodes and develop his arc and his character more. Yeah, I could have done without the subplot that they were setting up with Tom Paris so that we <laughs> yeah so that we could have more suitor yeah well <laughs> speaking of uh criminality and people acting uh you know against uh society or what's right uh yeah Tom does get a little arc in this season uh where he's uh, insubordinate you know and he's uh, just being a snot really yeah and it turns out to all be a setup to you know, make him appear to be on the outs or in trouble or something. And then he's, I I can't remember the details, but, uh, you know, and so I, I I get that it was this arc that they were doing and and building up to, but then when you have a story, such a compelling story as this, and you have to lose (laughs) screen time from, from Brad Dourif and Tim Russ, who are, who are, you know, really knock it out of the park in their portrayals. And then you have to cut to the goofy scenes in the uh, you cut know, back to French Chase bar, Andrew. whatever yeah. it's called. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have to wonder, though, is a society without any money, are they good with it? Do you know what I mean? Like if you gave <laughs> if you gave uh, a Federation citizen like a five thousand dollar loan and just told them to go crazy, uh, would they come back with anything? When, when Tom sets up this whole Hey everybody, let's you know gamble on this sort of random you know kino game basically, and I'm gonna skim off the top. I wonder if people really get that they're being got because it just seems so. He's just so <laughs> just well, just a little fee for the house. Fee for what? All you're doing yeah. is just asking the computer like what the number was. So yeah, I wonder if they they really get it. They're, they're easy marks. Uh, there's a yeah. there's a sucker trapped in the Delta Quadrant every minute. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, Tuvok actor Tim Russ uh, said that his favorite guest star to work with was uh, Brad Dourif, uh, sorry, Michael McKean and Jason Alexander and others. <laughs> uh, this episode is very highly rated by fans. Screen Rant voted Meld one of the top five Voyager episodes uh, in July of 2019. And all the cast and crew generally regard it as one of the best hours of early, early Voyager and have effusive praise for Russ and for Dourif. And of course, the real seal of quality after the show completed, Tim Russ included the sick bay scene in his acting reel. Mm. which uh he's he's very good in that scene and i i like the fact that he uh <laughs> i i always love it when you see that a vulcan actor is actually a really good actor and wasn't just like cast uh to be emotionless uh because that's all they could do uh yeah. you see this with like brent spiner and of course they always gave brent spiner chances to you know act out and to do like crazy data things but tim russ is like really really good but also he's just really good at being this guy who does eyebrow acting and kind of frowns a lot. Yeah. I love the, if if I can call attention to one bit, when there's a scene where Tuvok, well, I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit because it's, it's after the first mind meld. And Mm. when he goes to Janeway to report it, he's wringing his hands basically. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's not, overstated it's just it's just at the bottom of the screen they don't make make a big deal about it they don't do like a heavy-handed cut like close up on his hands or anything (laughs) right Janeway doesn't seem to notice it so it doesn't get called attention to in a big way but it's great because while he's saying that you know everything's fine with him he is fidgeting with his hands in a very un-Vulcan way you can tell that he was much more disturbed by it than he wants to admit such a great little scene that's a great thing i also love in that scene in sick bay uh he doesn't go like full joker you know right away at first he's just sort of yeah uh he's you know you can feel tuvok there still it's just a little turned up and then of course when he's presented his arguments and they're not giving it to him Instead of having Vulcan reserve, then he he gets mad and he starts throwing things around. And it's like, we've all seen a bro, you know, at closing time at the bar. He just wants one more beer. And yeah, it just had that feel to it. That was really great. It's very disturbing. Crime and punishment, and particularly mental illness, is something that is, um, I think, underexplored, at least how it fits into Federation society. We get stories about weird punishments in other societies. Uh, you know, you get... 20 years of hard time put in your head or you have to relive the the victim of a murderer's experiences. Uh, but as far as the Federation goes, if the neuralizer from Dagger of the Mind is the best that we can look forward to as far as psychiatric <laughs> treatment goes, uh, we're in a lot of trouble. That or uh, the facility in uh, Whom Gods Destroy, if that's if that's what I know that those are like the ultimate, that's the Arkham Asylum of the Federation, but it doesn't not a lot of treatment going on. Let's see. Well, I mean, you know, they they do they do bring up that the doctor is uh, trained in various things as they're trying to decide what to do. Yeah. And I mean, I think that you can tell already that Tuvok is compromised when he brings up to Janeway that Suter, you know, when he brings up the idea of execution, that's that Suter is is uh, open to execution and he so he 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 phrases it carefully so that he's not saying we should execute him he's just mentioning this right (laughs) but then when 
Janeway is so shocked that he's mentioned this and she's, you know, d- dismisses it outright. He says, well, you know, maybe the uh, victim's surviving family would think otherwise. Well, yeah. that is, that's such an emotional appeal. I mean, he states it very dryly. He's still speaking in very Vulcan tones, but yeah. I mean, that's completely an appeal to emotion. And so it, it just, you know, it's this slow burn as you realize that he's much more, been much more messed up by the uh, mind meld than he's letting on. And of course, eventually it explodes outward. It's so interesting too, because we never get like a real brochure about getting into the Federation, but I think it's like generally accepted that as a uh, race, if you want to get in, there are things that you have to meet. And yeah. one of them is like to have, you know, a, a centralized government, you know, you can't have like sectarian strife, um, having warp drive, of course. And I think one of those things might also be like, have you realized that the death penalty is a bad idea? Like, do you put people to death for crimes? Because I can't imagine the Vulcans. I don't know. They they tend to have cold logic. And I don't think that we see them using any capital punishment on screen. But, you know, just I, I, I would think that the Federation is generally like, we, we don't do that. We send them to New Zealand or, or wherever. We don't <laughs> or to get, give them the neuralizer. Yes. Uh, but we don't. Uh, but we're not putting people to death here. And the fact, yeah, I think the fact that Tuvok even floats that. Um, casually, as you mentioned, but the fact that it's, yeah, it's that's an absolutely an emotional appeal. That one thing that confuses me about Tuvok's descent is the the the, the, the trick holodeck scene. Um, yeah. So Neelix, it kind of starts out, he's doing his usual thing where he's trying to get some sort of reaction out of Mr. Vulcan. <laughs> and it starts getting a little over the top. I mean, we actually when he actually puts his hands on Tuvok's face, <laughs> yeah. and you're kind of wondering, like, whoa, this is a whole other level. And but it's you're you're still kind of believing it. And uh, and then Tuvok grabs him, and you're like, wow, yeah, he's losing it. And then you finally get the reveal that it's a holodeck program, yeah. and and Tuvok leaves. But then you're left wondering, well. How much of that did Tuvok program? You know, it's like, did he <laughs> say to the computer, I want you to take Neelix and turn him up to 11? Right. Yeah. So that I can, <laughs> you know, throttle the little creep? Yeah. Or, you know, it's it's a little awkward, but it, it plays off. You know, th- then it does play off well when he's discussing... Uh, what to do with Suter himself and suggests to him using the holodeck. And, and Suter says that he's already tried that and it, and it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, and I, it's like, well, I played a ton of Grand Theft Auto and I'm, I'm still the same. <laughs> yeah. And of course it's interesting, you know, Tuvok doesn't admit to Suter that he also has used the holodeck to yeah. to uh, you know, let some steam off. <laughs> yeah, and Tuvok's not talking to anybody here. Um, you know, there's no counselor, but he doesn't even go to anybody who could provide that role. So we don't really know how much of this is his idea and how much of it is, you know, Suter sort of infecting him, um, having that impulse to use the holodeck in that way, um, feeling 
even remotely the guilt that Suter might deep down feel uh, about um, the loss that uh, Darwin's family would uh, experience and therefore perhaps suggesting uh, execution uh, for that reason. Instead, we just get Tuvok going to, uh, you know, computer run program, uh, Mr. Vulcan says die. <laughs> the That first scene after the holodeck between Tuvok and Suter, it's... I mean, they're they're both so good in it, and you and you see, Tuvok is on edge, and and then but then Suter is the opposite. You know, they've kind of switched roles. Yeah. And Dorf was so good, and and Russ was so good, and it's you know it's really compelling to see the the guy that we already know is is a complete sociopath, just saying, wow, you know that kind of worked. Let's keep doing this. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, and Tuvok is just that would not be advisable. Yeah, <laughs> it just uh, it's it's possi- it's possibly a radical treatment that somebody I know they're out in the middle of, the, of nowhere and apparently um, they do have cloud computing because they can't access uh, Suter's cr- criminal record in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, and I guess they can't uh, access the DSM. 27 or whatever they've got now as far as um, <laughs> telepathic treatments for uh, psychological problems. Um, the 60s writers, like early Trek writers, love their mind beams. You know, they're, yeah. they've got the uh, dagger of the mind thing. They've got the thing that they stick people in and uh, whom gods destroy, the, the pacifier or whatever. I remember Melinda Snodgrass saying that she was talking with Gene about the legal system in the future. And Gene was like, well, we won't need courts. You know, criminals will just be fixed, which... Is chilling, but I don't think Gene meant it in a big brother kind of way. I just think that as a writer, he was more focused on the problems of his time, civil rights, atomic escalation and war. And he knew criminality was a problem. But, you know, the fix it ray was a sci-fi solution, a kind of yada yada of the problem. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think also it's I, I think I mentioned this earlier that he's thinking that a lot of the uh, core uh, reasons for crime have been eliminated because yeah. if you eliminate need, you know, if no one's really poor, uh, that would uh, t- t- eliminate a, a lot of crime right there. It's yeah. like you don't have desperate people that are hungry or you know and are stealing <laughs> for that reason. Um, but and then I also think that he meant that we'd be able to really help people, treat people that have some sort of physiological problem, some sort of uh, mental problem that is causing them to act out. People like Suter, uh, you, <laughs> yeah. you, you'd like to think that, okay, now we've reached a point where we've figured out w- what causes a person to be a sociopath. We can help them. Um, <laughs> yeah, except we haven't. But Because all the scans of Suter are, you know, essentially normal. Yeah. And, but he clearly is the textbook sociopath well and that was another great thing about making him betazoid where he's got the line saying that betazoids can sense the emotions of other people and and that he doesn't get that and he can't even sense his own emotions and yeah (laughs) and and that worked you know the so that was a nice extra twist that if he had just been human it, it wouldn't have had that extra little layer of, of science fiction interesting stuff there. That, uh, right. That Plus he, it's a great he, Smith's lyric, I think. And uh, <laughs> he's even more broken than a, than a human sociopath 
for a Betazoid yeah. to be that bereft of any sort of empathic emotional ability. It's really weird. I guess not weird because I think science fiction writers are prognosticators and they are, whether or not they're trained specifically in the sciences, um, they are looking at things. And this idea of these violent impulses uh, was something that Michael Pillar, you know, wanted to explore, of course. Both he and Brandon Braga also um, was in talking about the episode, talked about the senseless random violence uh, that shocks you and has no explanation. And Braga specifically labeled it as a, quote, 90s issue, unquote, which, again, is it's a myopia of contemporaneity because he couldn't <clears throat> conceive of something like 9-11. That is, I was just chuckling at that great turn of phrase a myopia oh, of what was that exactly <laughs> contemporaneity yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah that's my manuscript title for yeah. my uh, trek novel <laughs> it just seems so naive now i mean in the world that we live in which mm-hmm. <sighs> this is all pre-columbine you know as well so the fact that they were trying to confront i don't know i think if this was done now we'd have to have another act or a, a different act where we get some kind of solution. I don't think that we would have been comfortable leaving because it's not resolved, you know, Tuvok, because there is no answer, you know, and Tuvok can't find an answer. But I think if this was done on Discovery, we would have to have, it would have to conclude in some way. We'd have to have something that reassures us or some kind of solution in story because it is, it's left very open-ended. Yes, but I do love the shot um one of the final shots when uh, or one of the, the one of the final shots with Suter in this episode when he calls for help for Tuvok. Yeah. And, and kind of cradles him waiting yeah. for help to arrive. It's a it's a, a, a touching scene. But then in the long run, after you see what happens to Suter, then it's like, oh, man, it's you know, it's pretty <laughs> it's pretty bleak. And yeah, I'm okay, if. This is kind of name dropping. I hope hope she doesn't mind. But I got to tell you, <laughs> I happened to be talking to Kirsten Beyer last night and told her I was going to be doing the show and, and that I we were going to be doing meld. <laughs> and she said, did you pick that? It's it's so disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of like, well, yeah, that's why it's sticks in my mind it's it is disturbing it's a that sometimes those are the things that really stick with you that uh, when you see something intrude on the you know the happy federation starfleet lookout and you get something that is like you said there's not really a resolution here there's not you know there's there's not it's definitely not a happy ending yeah uh you know because even if you were able to treat Suter successfully uh well he still killed a guy you know yeah yeah and what does the federation do about that you know is there a way back is there i'd have to imagine that Something like something like restorative justice, which people won't even try to talk about uh, in our time, has been fully explored and hopefully in- implemented in the future um, where we just give. I don't know. What, what do you do? Do you give him like a does a robot follow him around for the rest of his life? <laughs> uh, that's actually something I stole that from uh, the culture novels by Ian M. Banks, um, which has a very open society uh, called the culture, like the Federation. Mm-hmm. And the thing about like murder is it's very hard to kill somebody in the culture because there's cloning and and people's minds are backed up 
And so I guess the impact is less. But if you do kill somebody, um, it's it's not just okay. Like there is like a punishment thing. But eventually you're let out again uh, and you're followed around by a drone basically for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And it isn't so much that you have to be punished by a penal system. It's that the biggest punishment in the culture is like social um, excisement or um, or just being um, ostracized from society because yeah. the whole thing about the culture is this is a great society like we all enjoy playing and and spending time with each other and stuff and if if you're the guy that nobody invites to a party that is your punishment yeah and it's but yeah, you need some sort of science fictional way to enact that because i have an acquaintance who's a very hardcore libertarian free market kind of person oh great let's get him on the show and um <laughs> At one point, he was saying something about how, you know, in his worldview and the worldview, a lot of the people that go down that same path, everything can be solved by the free market. And so he was saying that if, um, you know, for people who've behaved poorly, well, then, you know, businesses wouldn't just wouldn't serve the person or whatever. And and that would be, you know, justice and that or that would be punishment. But then (laughs) it's like. Well, but how am I as a business owner to know who I'm supposed to be punishing? You know, he's kind of like trying to eliminate big government. You know, he's kind of borderline (laughs) anarchist kind of thing. And it's like, well, but then where's the structure that is sending the notices every morning to businesses to say, here's a person that's on the list, the bad list. Right. (laughs) The sample bad list. Don't don't give them their, you know, burgers and fries when they come in because they've been bad. So it, you know, it doesn't really make sense. It seems in the real world, unless you can add a science fictional layer that, <laughs> you know, well, well, but there's the drone. That, that guy's one of those guys. He's got the yeah. drone hovering over him. But that also seems rather unwieldy. But I think we've kind of got it now. It's social media and social <laughs> social capital. You know what I mean? yeah. They're already they're already implementing this in uh, in China and other countries. Uh, yeah, if that's the guy who. Uh, will, uh, you know, steal some roles and uh, not pay for them. When you live in the Star Trek universe, though, you know, the roles are free. So is it the guy who butts in front of the line or something like that? Or is like, or is really rude about it? Gives you a bad review on social media? I I don't know how it works. (laughs) Uh, I don't have a true crime podcast, believe it or not. So I don't know a lot about serial killers, but the... uh, the, the language that Souter uses in a lot of his scenes um, remind me of something that like a Ted Bundy has been quoted as saying, you know, yeah. feeling a detachment from his actions, um, not knowing why he did it. Specifically, that line about like, I didn't like the way that he looked at me is something that I think that you could um, imagine somebody on Mindhunter saying. Yeah. There's no screening process for hiring McKee, I think. <laughs> you, can, <laughs> yeah. you can tell. And I like the fact that the, it's just another like, great lost opportunity of Voyager is exploring more um, the, the sort of dark side of uh, Federation society and the McKee. But I like the mention that the McKee take anybody, you know, they're just looking to fight this war. And it reminds me of war movies like uh, where you've got like the crazy guy who is only at home in war. Yeah. Um, Animal mother, you know, from full metal jacket or something like that. <laughs> yeah. You know? The speech about how like, as long as somebody's shooting bullets at him, he's a perfect human being. But it's just like when he goes back to society, that's the problem. Uh, having somebody like Suter, who knew that he had a problem and specifically joined the McKee. So he's like, I got to get these impulses. At least I can kill like the right. I can Dexter this. I can kill the bad people. 
Yeah. That's a, for an enlightened society, that is a horrifying thing for a member of that society to be thinking and to, to have to seek uh, an avenue or a release like that. Yeah. So, and the idea that, you know, Tuvok brings up the idea of trying to work these things out on the holodeck. Yeah. And, but then, you know, just kind of imagine that. I mean, uh, how much more awful would those programs be than than the most embarrassing thing that uh, that Barclay came up with? You know, <laughs> right? Yeah, like, gotcha. Accidentally wander into Suter's program when he's in there flaying people or something. Yeah, uh, give me one second. I've got it. I've got it. I've got it till the end of the hour. So hold on. Yeah. Well, I mean, it must exist, though. I, I think there's an argument to be made, and maybe not on this show, but that that would be a way to go. That sure, Roddenberry believes that we eliminate all the problems, you eliminate all the um, bad impulses. But I think we can agree that 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 can't be true, at least not fully. And so maybe, you know, you've already got like Vulcan Love Slave, (laughs) all these programs that Quark has. I don't think that and they don't get into this too much in Trek either. But I think that we accept that their love lives are are different. But yet most of the ones uh, in relationships we see are monogamous. But then if you go you know, hang out in Love Slave 5, do you come home and your wife is like, okay, where you've been? Uh, I I think it'd be, it'd be too much for a primetime TV show in the 90s to try to explore uh, characters, you know, blowing off steam. Yeah, Worf is fighting Skeletor all the time on the holodeck and that's fine. Yeah. But of course he's a Klingon. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. Um, sometime in the future, uh, the psychology of the <laughs> social acceptance of the holodeck, we got to get into that. There's a kind of Trek episode that we get Starting, I think, in earnest with a character like Odo, uh, who's supposed to evoke kind of a detective gumshoe-like character, mm-hmm. uh, where we're solving a mystery. And that gets translated to Tuvok uh, on Voyager as the logical chief of security. He's trying to solve these mysteries often. And this episode starts out looking like it's going to be a whodunit, and it becomes a whodunit that the bottom falls out of as our investigator early on learns the truth and just can't get past the reality of the answer. It's like if... Uh, Poirot, you know, had figured it out by the you know middle of the second act, and then the rest of the time he's just like, I just don't understand why this person <laughs> did it. Yeah, on the one hand, it, it's it's obviously it's it's interesting to watch Tuvok wrestle with this, but on the other hand, you just want to say, you know, you've been around humans a long time, you know that, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that there are people that are just you know broken like this it's like why is it so you know he keeps wanting there to be a a a logical answer to something that's a completely illogical set of circumstances beyond suitor's control yeah yeah it it does uh, make it that much more uh interesting that like you say once the bottom drops out of it you know it goes from a whodunit to a why done it and yeah he just can't let it go yeah, and Russ himself, he he had two friends who were doctors, and uh, he uh, consulted them about trying to get insight into the the workings of the of the criminal mind, and where like hostility and 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 violence comes from uh, in 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 violent criminals. And of course, I mean, there we don't have an answer um, in the twenty twentieth century, twenty first century. So I think that all contributes to um, his mystery. 
Tuvok might be the worst person <laughs> to to try to understand a psychopath because already he's he's a Vulcan. He's a Vulcan of advanced age, but all that means is that he's spent even more time uh, with suppressed emotions. <laughs> so now he's taking on these emotions. And that the one thing that I really love, I like this episode a lot, but the one idea that I really like is the idea of this guy with supreme emotional control taking on these uh, wild emotions uh, and not being able to handle them, which makes sense. But then this other guy who is supposed to be this unhinged killer uh, getting this control from uh, the Vulcan, but also maybe showing more discipline mentally than even the Vulcan does in that he is fighting these impulses every day. And sure, he killed a guy, but I mean, he's, yeah. you know, he's 40, he's in his 40s or whatever. And like, yeah. Almost like, you know, the Vulcan is supposed to be the guy who can control this stuff, but it's like, here you go, buddy, try this. <laughs> and five minutes later, he guys, he's turned his quarters over, you know, and he's hiding in the dark. Yeah. It's, um, I was about to say it's a fascinating episode. Then I was trying to stop myself from saying it's a fascinating episode because <laughs> fascinating, <laughs> but it, it really is. It, it does so much work with, um, with the whole Vulcan thing. And, and one thing that I really liked was when, uh, when Suter, started talking about mind melds there's a there's a scene where he says uh well i guess mind melds are violent that they're sort of inherently violent um and to me it brings to mind the mind meld that spock forced on valeris in star yes. trek six and yes. it's like there was the perfect example that says, yeah, these mind melts can be violent. They can be, you know, in, in that case, out of desperation, basically, to to uh, stave off potential war with the Klingons. Spock forces a mind meld on someone and it's and it that is horrible. And it's horrible to watch Spock do it, even though you understand why. And so, you know, that was, you know, three or four years before this episode. So I, right. I, I'm hoping that they knew that that would pop into people's minds that as soon as Souter started describing mind melds as a violent penetrative act that you just like get this image of Valeris, you know, under Spock's hands. And it's because even though she's the bad guy in, in there, you can't help. But I mean, that's an uncomfortable scene. This is a good episode. I think it could have been a truly great episode if they had really kept it to the two of them. Maybe because I'm thinking about an episode like like Duet and maybe they thought, well, we don't want to do Duet again. Mm -hmm. um, but that interplay of one guy wanting something, the other guy wanting something else, presumably, then them switching jerseys and then yeah. having to deal with both what, what they want and what the other person wants. I think all those subtextual things are there, but I almost feel like the show runs past them or, 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 or misses them sometimes yeah. in order to give us Tuvok killing Neelix. I could have, yeah, I definitely could have watched 42 minutes of Suter and Tuvok yeah. just dancing around each other. And I kind of understand, you know, by... In in the uh, pre-credit scene, you get the you know the the Tom Paris thing, and that's like this bit of housekeeping that they're setting up for this multiple episode arc. Right. And then you get the Neelix scene before you get to the 
to the meat of the episode. But of course, the Neelix scene was just a setup for the later Neelix scene. But the later Neelix scene, the, the only the, the the only point of that was to show Tuvok losing it. Yeah, yeah. And you could have done that in some other way that didn't require the Neelix setup, so that you could have given all the screen time to just the two of them. And there's no completion to that as well, because in that initial thing you see uh, when Neelix comes over to Tuvok, I'm like, oh, here's our C-plot. Okay. And then you get kind of a twist on that when, yeah, he gets fake murdered in the middle, but then there's no, I guess it wouldn't fit. I, I love the ending of this episode where Tuvok is talking to Janeway and he's like, as much as he can as a Vulcan, he's like, I'm so sorry. Yeah. I'm so sorry this happened. But of course, I mean, nothing's going to break these two up. I mean, just having uh, Tuvok call Jane away uh, pathetic or, or whatever it is, yeah. disgusting. That's not going to, these two are together forever. Yeah. Well, the thing that's, I think, a little muddled about that scene is on the one hand, you're saying, well, you know, he, he's out of control. The, the violent tendencies of Suter have, have thrown him off balance and that sort of thing. Um, but then on the other hand, you're kind of wondering, well, are we just supposed to think that he's just lost his emotional control and that deep down he has some of these feelings that he's suppressed them, but now they've come out and that yeah. doesn't, that doesn't seem to quite work. You don't want to think that he has these hidden dark thoughts. And, and so I could have used a little bit more clarity there. It's like, well, has he just, because I think it's, I think you have to think of it more than just he's lost his control Right. He's, he's both lost his control and he's essentially been infected by Suter's problems. Yeah. So that he's not speaking like his true dark thoughts that you don't admit to. You, yeah. You, you want to think that these are thoughts that are are coming from outside because you don't want to think that he's has these <laughs> things. But, but it might even be, you know, as somebody who is the the constable of sorts, he's the, yeah. the security chief. He may even be one uh, percent of him entertaining the idea that, I don't know, it might be the right idea to kill this guy. And to me, it feels like like addiction, like in the way that an addict decides to give something up. But mm -hmm. then that addiction makes them justify and think of reasons to why it would be OK to do mm -hmm. this or that. If he's got part of Suter in his mind who does maybe in a in his own 1% way want to die, yeah. then now you've got Tuvok who that 1% is now 99% because it combines with the self-pity and loathing of Suter for Tuvok being like, well, this is the right option. It's such the right option that I'm going to sabotage this force field with these <laughs> high energy, high voltage wire that's on this hospital bed. I don't know how that works, but we got to get him out of there somehow. <laughs> Yeah, one of the things that makes the episode so compelling is that it is hard to tell where cold logic and sociopathy, <laughs> right. you know, how are they interacting? Which is the name of your next book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> my autobiography. Right. And <laughs> because you're wondering, yeah, where do, how, how are they interacting? Where does one leave off and the other one? Because from a very cold standpoint, you could say, okay, so we have our, you know, we have the dwindling resources on this ship and we're going to continue giving that to this guy that's just locked in his room for the next potentially 70 years. Right. Or do we just kind of, you know, 
say goodbye. And, yeah. and, and so you can make it sound like it's a cold equation, just debit and credit. But yeah, yeah. But, but then in the end, you know, it's like, well, are we are we really going to decide who lives or dies on the basis of 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 wealth, basically? Because then you're just then you're looking at the the sort of you know horrible justicism we have right now, where rich people walk free and poor people have done very little wrong, get sentenced to life for you know minor crimes. So yeah. And then Javert. Have we mentioned Javert yet? <laughs> do we uh, want you, to do you we mean, want to break uh, into song what <laughs> are we doing eddington and cisco here <laughs> or yeah that <laughs> yeah i uh oh boy i have vulcans and uh betazoids have they never like mind melded before <laughs> like you think that we would anticipate this i think in an earlier episode is it i think it's the one where tom paris is uh been convicted of murder and tuvok wants to mind meld with him and the doctor's like hold up hold up a minute I know more about mind melds than you do because I've got all the medical literature that anybody's ever done. And apparently Vulcans have never like hooked up with a Betazoid in a mind meld capacity. Apparently, yeah. I, it, um, I didn't do my deep dive research on the question. It just seems like it's like, you know, fire and ice. It's yeah. a, a super, super telepath or something like that. <laughs> but anyway, of course, it doesn't uh, go great here. Uh, as we get to the end of the episode, is there uh, anything that you've left unsaid? Anything you wanted to cover for the episode meld? Well, there's there's one parenthetical that uh, always interested me that, and it's really got nothing to do with the episode, but it was mentioned by Tuvok in there. To, when Tuvok is saying, you know, you just have to lock me up. You know, I'm too dangerous to be allowed on the ship now. And he right. says, I've been trained in, in multiple martial arts. Right, right. And the one thing that I think we have never really gotten to see that I want to see in Star Trek is a Vulcan martial artist just going, you know, <laughs> put in a position where it's like, now it is time to take care of some business. Sure. You know, you know some sort of, you know, Vulcan Krav Maga kind of thing and just, you know, taking out lots of people. In, in a in a cold and, and ruthless manner. Maybe that's if if Quentin Tarantino does make a Star Trek movie. <laughs> maybe that's what we'll get. We'll get a kick ass Vulcan martial arts scene. Um, and with uh, like weaponized uh, telepathic touches and yeah, things yeah. like that. <laughs> uh, but on a on a much more serious note, the only uh, remaining comment that I would like to make is to to spoil the. Uh, the next two episodes in this little arc uh, mm. that we see that the mind meld with Tuvok has helped Suter. Yeah. And so he gets confined to quarters ostensibly for up to 70 years. But instead in the follow-up episodes in those season, the season finale and season uh, debut of the next season, the ship gets taken over, stolen, the crew put off, and in desperation, the doctor just kind of lets Suter out of the, you know, lets the dogs out. You know, you got to let it out. You just got to, you got to do it. You got to take <laughs> one for the team and just go back to your, your ways and, uh, and go full on Dexter. And it's very disturbing because on the one hand, he, he, saves the entire crew essentially if if not for him 
you know, would they have ever gotten the ship back? But then he's <laughs> he's killed in the process. Any uh, any uh, if he hadn't been killed, he would have just been back to being this totally, you know, raving sociopath that had gone on this horrible killing spree. It yeah. really is a very disturbing and depressing story. <laughs> yeah. And it's the kind of thing that I think you see in other shows, other tales like this, um, him hulking out or we, we got, we don't need Jekyll. We need Hyde right now. Yeah. But f- to put it in this, and I mean this in the best way possible, but this namby-pamby world of um, <laughs> touchy-feely Star Trek 24th century, um, there you know, there has to be an answer there. And whenever um, something like DS9, okay, so the Dominion has already taken over a quarter of the galaxy now. They want half. We're No, we're, we got to fight them back. Yeah. But I always kind of feel the same way about these. Uh, moments in Trek where it's like, we're not going to take it anymore. Full torpedoes, fire the phasers, and we're going to get them and kill them. Uh, Maybe, you know, a ship would be willing to sacrifice themselves rather than, you know, take life in a first contact or a war situation. But that's, yeah, that's not what we want from from our action (laughs) storytelling. So you get something like Discovery, which I think Discovery is well positioned because it takes place earlier. It is a darker toned show. And I could see something like we might have had something like that already on the show uh especially with Giorgio where it's like Giorgio keeps killing people hey stop that but it's all yeah. in the it's all in the service of whatever our heroes want to accomplish yeah so, yeah it's um it's a dilemma <laughs> but it's a fun one though uh, I believe that you said that your favorite captain was Captain Kirk I'm just gonna guess there um how do you this I think this episode has a real TOSE kind of feel to it. Um, I believe that uh, Spock has been in a situation like this mm-hmm. before. And um, yeah, it just had a real uh, original series feel. How do you think uh, Kirk would have weighed in this uh, in this situation? Boy, it, it, it kind of feels like it probably would have played out very similarly because you, you picture uh, Kirk standing over Spock in, in the sick bay recovering. Right. And, and Spock trying to apologize. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and Kirk understanding, um, because I don't think Kirk would have been, uh, Kirk wouldn't have executed him either. Um, I mean, of course the difference is that unless you really change the setting, you know, you know, if you're picturing Kirk on the enterprise as, as it was, he would have been able to just drop off Suter at a Starfleet facility Right, and he wouldn't have had to. He wouldn't be facing the same, the same problems. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I, I that hadn't occurred to me that. But uh, the the TOS ness of it, but it it does. You you could almost see this just taking this script and crossing out the names. <laughs> yeah, and writing in the other crew members, and it's like, wow, that 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 would have made a great. Kirk's Spock episode. With, yeah. Yeah. Goofing around with mind melds and Spock losing control. Yeah. Also, um, Russ talked about um, enjoying episodes like this um, in the same way that Nimoy did in that it gave them a chance to do something different and kind of run with it a little bit. And of course, there's plenty of uh, original series episodes where Spock's acting goofy, everybody. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Which just supports my theory that uh, Janeway is uh, the female Kirk. In many ways, uh, yeah, yeah. Some of the the the, uh, the arcs they gave her, the stories, you know, she was willing to, uh, 
you know, to, to mix it up, get in there like much like Kirk. Yeah. Well, uh, for reporting for duty a third time, your rank will be advanced to that of Lieutenant Commander with all the rights and privileges owed there too. Uh, and of course, you work in the Department of Action Figures, Collectibles, Not Toys Division, Open Box Bureau. Uh, how how are things down there? I mean, you are basically in charge of this department at this point. You answer to no one. Yes. And um, I really need uh, more shelf space for the action figures <laughs> down here. Sure. Uh, I need, uh, because it's not, these aren't holodeck action figures. These are the real things. They take up physical space. And so right. I need right. to uh, knock down a couple of walls, some bulkheads somewhere. I saw, I was watching an enter- uh, enterprise. I was watching a YouTube video the other day uh, about the size of the um, the Enterprise D, a galaxy class vessel, and about how they say that there's you know about a thousand people, I guess, on board. Mm-hmm. And it has... Um, you know, X amount of uh, square footage and it, they worked it out and it's like every person, every uh, person of that thousand people has like 8,000 square feet to themselves. <laughs> like, it's just like, I know they do things where they go to a planet that's stars going to go Nova and they've got to like get a lot of people off a colony or something. And so it can go to a capacity of like 10,000, but yeah, it's just echoey, echoey halls and probably like tons of empty space, like in the hall, uh, it explains why you only see like occasionally like a person walking through the corridors or something like that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think we could definitely requisition some more space, knock out a couple walls uh, yeah. and set up some shelves for you there uh, for sure. Rank has its privileges. Rank has its privileges. It certainly does. Well, uh, Lieutenant Commander Pearson, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can at at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? I am on the Twitter, like the kids do, and uh, (laughs) I'm on Facebook like the old people do, but I don't look at it that much anymore. And I'm on Instagram. Uh, You can find my personal website at Scott hyphen pearson.com you can look us up on generationsgeek.com and find handy links to all our episodes uh so yeah i'm i'm all over that that interwebs anything coming up that you want to share with the listeners the upcoming episode of generations geek is uh ella regaling me with stories of harry potter related things that she was able to do (laughs) while she was in england she saw you know places where the film was shot. She went to the Warner Brothers Harry Potter studio tour. <laughs> she was able to see the. Uh, um, oh, I've just blanked out on the name of the stage play. The something of the cursed child, cursed child. Yeah. yeah so the cursed child. Yes. She saw that live on stage in London. Wow. And so, yeah, really uh, a play by play of all sorts of Harry Potter stuff. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure when the episode is going to be uh, going live, but well, between that and uh, Tolkien and uh, what, like the all those studios, uh, films that shoot there, uh, Destination Star Trek. I mean, there are a lot of cities in the world, but she really couldn't have picked. It seems a better place, <laughs> yeah, uh, to enjoy yourself and also to get material for the show. Yeah, well, that's great. Uh, look out for that, listeners. And Scott, thanks again for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. We're signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. Oh, no.